welcome to For the Love of Dogs with Dennis Wolf. Well, here we are again at our favorite, favorite Friday evening. And we are here with For the Love of Dog. So today we're going to uh, actually speak about something that uh, my engineer and I were just talking about with dogs, car safety. Car safety. People don't understand that when you put a dog in your car, you are setting that dog up, not just if you have a car accident, because obviously that's nobody, you know, would question that, but just you hit the brakes too hard, you take a corner too hard, and you can very easily hurt a dog. Now, the safest thing, think about with your children, with your babies, right? You put them in a car seat. If you have a vehicle that is able to accommodate a nice crate, that's actually the safest thing. An airline crate or uh, some kind of a, a kennel situation where the dog has a little space to walk around, but that the dog is safe. And make sure you put something soft into it, too. Um, but one of the interesting things is when people say to me, oh, Jess, my dog hates to go in the car. A lot of times getting into the car and being safe once you get in is secondary. How many of you guys have a dog who the dog gets into the car or doesn't get into the car, and he's panting, and he's like, oh, no, oh, no. And you could just about put a bubble over his head that says, please, dear God, don't make me go into that thing. It moves. Well, we want to make sure that you guys are going to be setting your dog up for success, not for failure. If you have a young dog, you have a puppy, you have a dog who's uncomfortable in the car, start doing fun stuff in your car. Now, I know some of you will get your minds out of the gutter there. We're not talking to humans. We're talking a human and a dog, and let's just keep it that way. When you have your dog getting into a car, think about it. Why is your dog nervous when he or she is going to go into the car? Well, where does he go when he goes into the car? Well, maybe a trip to the vet, which isn't always a joyous experience, or a trip to the groomer, which gets scary and, you know, he gets all wet and bathed and then gets clipped. And maybe he's going to a place that he just doesn't know, or maybe he gets car sick. Maybe he gets nauseous. Some dogs do get car sick. And there are things that you can do, doggy Dramamine, which you can get from your veterinarian, which can be a very, very uh, good option. We don't want to always keep them on it forever, but a lot of times it is just anxiety, car anxiety, and it's a pretty simple thing. You know, think about, well, Jody, I'm throwing you under the bus here. Um, my daughter is um, uh, is, a, is a good driver um, for herself. But the issue is, um, until recently, when she hits the brakes and she's got a vehicle that's got very touchy brakes to start with, I don't like to drive with her, and most people don't. So if I have an option of driving or of having her drive, chances are I'm probably going to drive. Even if I don't want to drive, I will. Well, think about your dog. You know, your dog may decide that, you know, I don't want to go in the car because I get sick. Make sure that you are driving as a passenger or in the back seat. And what I want you to do, and this is, you know, safe, do it safely, lean forward a little bit. Um, don't lean all the way back when you're in the back seat. Have somebody drive, take corners just a hair too fast, take, you know, braking and, and starting up from, uh, from stops, accelerating a little too fast, hitting the brakes a little too hard, 
And, and I'm not talking about going on the highway and doing 90 and getting a speeding ticket. I'm talking about go do it in a parking lot. So go 20 miles an hour, do it, do it. Even at 10 miles an hour, you're going to see that your dog is, remember, your dog isn't sitting down, so to speak, and he's sliding. Now, a great thing to do, we just started talking about this, when you have your dog in the car, you want him to have something soft, but something that isn't going to slide. When you put something in, like a cute fleece blanket, which you say, oh, look, that's so soft, but that fleece blanket it's going to slide around, and it's not going to give that dog a feeling of comfort and stability. It's going to give him a comfort and neuroses because he's going to be like, oh, my gosh, it's moving, it's sliding. So handy things for that are yoga mats, okay? When you have a yoga mat, and for those of you who don't do yoga, go to, like, you know, TJ Maxx or, you know, one of the, the cheap play, you know, places that has closeouts on things. Tuesday morning has it. Just get yourself, not the really, really thin yoga mats, but the ones that are about maybe three-eighths of an inch thick, you know, about that, half an inch thick. And what you do, just cut that off. It's the cheapest crate mat you'll ever have. Take that, slice it up to be the size that you're going to need for the crate or even on your seats um, or the back of your car. Now, what's going to happen is because it's rubber, it won't slide. It will give your dog a much, much more comfortable and secure feeling. And also, think about it, not just sliding around, but even when a dog jumps up, those of you who have SUVs, uh, like I have uh, too many vehicles, and, and let's say, you know, my, my one of my Jeeps, if I put my dog up there and he jumps up too fast and hits something slippery, he slides. That gives them uh, an anxiety moment just for that. So you want to make sure that when they jump up, they're not sliding. You want to make sure that they're kind of getting up there and being secure from the minute they get in there. Um, one of the other things is that if you have a large dog, like particularly I'm thinking of Moose here, we have a 125-pound female Ridgeback that we placed. Her name is Moose. She's wonderful. Well, uh, Mom has the same vehicle as I have, one of the Jeeps. And um, when we were trying to have Moose get up into the vehicle, I realized that Moose was just too big to get up there. Now, she can fit. But remember, when a dog is jumping up, especially if you have a longer back dog, it's not always a bad idea for you to help the dog up, teach your dog to put the front feet up, and then you lift the hind end up because this way the dog isn't getting that running start and sliding when he or she gets up there. You really got to think like a dog. Imagine if you had socks on and I said to you, run as fast as you can to jump up onto your top step, but you have uh, hardwood floors, real slick hardwood floors. You would jump up and slide. And it's a very, very disconcerting feeling to feel that, oh, no, I'm, gonna, I'm sliding. I'm going to get hurt. So the yoga mat is great. Um, I have tried literally probably every kind of mat, hammock, everything. Honestly, there's nothing better than a $10 bargain basement yoga mat. Put it in the back. Um, actually, uh, Glenn, my carpet guy who did my floors and a lot of carpet in my house, um, Glenn had a brilliant idea. If you get yourself, let's say you have a Jeep, you can get one of these 5 by 7 carpet remnants. Um, you know, like they have the area rugs, uh, a stiffer backed one, 
and you can actually fold it, and and it, it tailors perfectly to the back of your car, and it's carpet. So I take that, put a yoga mat on top of it, and my dogs are like cushy, cushy. Now at the front of it, because they're already in there, I put a nice comfy bed, and that's bumped up, bolstered up against the front seats, the back of the front seats. So, you know, a lot of it is just common sense. So we've discussed about, you know, if it's a physical thing where the dog is jumping up into something that he or she does not feel comfortable with, but then if it's something else, let's say it's something the way you drive or your vehicle, or let's say there's, you know, your dog always gets nervous only in your vehicle. If it's an older vehicle or the vehicle's been hit or something has, you know, hit the bottom of the vehicle, make sure your catalytic converter isn't uh, isn't leaking because dogs are able to sense things, even untrained dogs, okay? Now, my dogs do cancer and disease detection. They do seizures, blood sugar, uh, you know, cortisol, all kinds of things. So my dogs really are trained. But I've seen, I mean, listen, we rescue a lot of dogs, and we, we find dogs all the time who are really super at using their nose, utilizing what God and, uh, you know, listen, dog, the dog God, right, um, have given them. And these dogs have a great sense of smell. So there could be a fact that somebody um, is just, you know, missing that their catalytic converter or they've got a hole in the muffler or something, um, and there's exhaust leaking in. There could be something physically like that. So you got to think like a dog for a minute, okay? Now, how about if, you know, you take corners kind of quickly? Again, what is your dog doing? Your dog is sliding. Your dog is feeling uncomfortable. And if he gets nervous and anxious and he's sliding all over the place, guess what happens? He's going to probably, next time he has to go into the car, he's going to think, uh-oh, I'm not getting in there because last time this happened. Now, the interesting thing, and I, you've heard me say this over and over again, dogs live in the moment. Dogs do live in the moment. However, they can also have PTSD and be triggered by something that reminds them of something. So if you say, well, you know, how can dogs have PTSD, but, you know, you know they, they live in the moment. That doesn't make sense. That's very contradictory, you may say. And what do I say to that? Uh-uh. No, you're wrong. I'm right about this. Listen to me. If you have PTSD, person having PTSD, you don't typically walk around in fear and panic. Now, some people do because they have PTSD that's so severe that's never been treated. Um, and, and humans do have a much more complex uh, emotional uh, uh, state and an emotional range, um, spectrum, if you would, of different things. So let's say for a moment the dog is, you know, he's, let's say he's a chihuahua. And the last time you got into the car, you your foot slid off the, the, the gas or onto the gas. You quickly raced forward or you didn't have your car in park, thought it was in neutral at the car wash. It wasn't. You almost hit the car in front of you, slam on the brake. Now, you get over that very quickly. But now, let's say the dog was, you know, it, it was in a rainstorm. Now, the dog might associate rain with danger or the dog might associate your car with danger but they can associate it. Now, that doesn't mean that your dog is going to be looking at the weather report and getting on the weather channel and saying, oh, look, yeah, oh, 
wah, wah, wah. Oh, it looks like it's going to rain tomorrow. Oh, no, I better not go out. Last time we were in the rain, you know, we almost got in a car accident. But what the dog will do is when that exact situation presents itself, so in other words, now you are in a rainstorm again or the car or something or it's drizzling out and the dog now, it clicks in his head and that's where dogs absolutely can have PTSD. So dogs don't think constantly about that issue, but for sure they remember because, you know, I've heard people say, oh, dogs have no memory. They're not good. They don't have memory. Well, then how come a dog that I saw five years ago remembers me like, like nothing ever changed five years later? I had, there was a dog who I had um, fostered and it was literally five years prior and they couldn't catch the dog. He was running around. She was running around in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey. And um, everybody was trying to catch the dog. I went out. I whistled a few times. It took me an hour because we just had to find her location. But once we got a spotting, um, I whistled to her and I called her name. She looked at me. She put her tail between her legs. And then she realized who it was. And she came running to me. They had been looking for days. So, you know, again... Dogs remember things. It's just that they don't sit and focus and constantly think of nothing else but that individual thing that happened. So that's where you guys have to start thinking like a dog. Start imagining, all right, what is it in my car? What is it in the bus, in the train, in the SUV? What is it that's creating this problem with my dog? Now, if it's a recent rescue... Uh, or if you had, you know, a young puppy, sometimes these dogs come up on transports. When they come up on transports, very often they're commercial transporters who have maybe 40 dogs, 30, 40 dogs in, you know, relatively small cages. It's loud, it's bangy, it's clangy. Um, I've seen dogs in every kind of situation. Or they're coming out of a bad location. So now they're, they, let's say they were in a, in a shelter. So uh, I used to pull dogs out of Georgia, New, Louisiana, Texas, um, Missouri. We've pulled a lot of dogs. Kansas, we've pulled dogs. Arizona, we've pulled dogs. Uh, California. But certain areas that have uh, particularly, you know, tough weather, let's say like the Midwest in the winter, maybe a dog was kind of panicking because here it is, this bad weather, and somebody from animal control comes with a catch pole and puts this thing around the dog's neck. Now, meanwhile, the dog doesn't think, oh, my goodness, yay, I've been liberated. I'm fine. I'm all happy and healthy and safe. The dog actually looks at you as, oh, no, you know, what? what's happening to me? Everything I know is being changed. And it can also give the dog not only issues with banging and clanging and loud noises, but it can also give the dog issues with people, with collars, with men in, or people in uniforms, um, with people coming at them or, or holding things out toward them. So that can be where, let's say, somebody's playing with, uh, you know, Star Wars light stick, lightsaber or something, like Howard Wolowitz. Um, you know, or, uh, you know, those uh, noodles, the pool noodles, it's like a, looks like a giant cheese doodle, um, and you use them in the pool. So anything that kind of resembles something coming at them, that can create an issue and release a trigger. So 
if you're saying, hey, you know, the dog is is really nervous about, you know, getting in the car, well, is that what you're, so what are you going to walk everywhere for the rest of your life, or are you going to try to figure out how to, you know, how to fix it, right? So first thing you want to do, do not start out by using treats or food. It's not that you can't use them, but don't start out with that because what happens if the dog is motivated by fear, which I'm sure it is if you're having this issue and you're still listening to this particular episode, if the dog is kind of anxious or nervous about that, you don't want to give him any kind of food or or praise in that moment because you're actually reinforcing and rewarding a fearful state of mind. People will take food and they'll try to get the dog, a fearful dog, um, to calm down or to come to them. But do you really want to reward the fearful state of mind? No. You don't want to reward that. You want to reinforce that there was nothing to be afraid of in the first place. So when you decide, okay, I'm going to go into the car, don't pick a day that you have 30 seconds before you're going to work or before you're going to the vet or to the groomer or wherever you're going. Don't pick that day. Spend a little time, maybe on a weekend, maybe when you get home from work a little bit early. Take the dog, practice. So how do you actually get your dog into the car? Well, I've seen and worked with so many dogs that have issues like this. One of the most important parts of that is to take your time. Make sure that you're not rushing through it because, oh, I have five minutes now. Because five minutes isn't enough to do it because always assume you need more. Okay? Assume, excuse me, assume that you need to spend a lot more time because you want everything to go smoothly and you want to be able to repeat it three times. Everybody learns in threes, whether you think you do or not. Doesn't mean you're going to get it after the third, but it starts to sink in on that third time. So if you go and you open the door, one of the things I like to do with especially larger dogs or dogs who have severe phobias is if if it's a dog that you can help to go in and let's say, you know, you, you get them in, open the opposite door. Try this in your back seat instead of trying it in your trunk, in your hatch. Open both back doors. Have the person feed the leash from the back door, either a harness or a collar, not a choke collar, not a choke lead, just a regular thick collar that will not choke your dog. And someone would actually stand behind the dog in, in, on the one side. Let's say you're on the driver's side of the car. So somebody would just put their legs up close to but not pushing the dog over onto the the back seat, but you just stand there and you're not pushing him up toward it, but you're not allowing him to back away either. So now the owner or whoever the dog might like best should be on the passenger side. So the driver's side is the dog with the person standing behind him, not pushing, not touching with your hands, just stand behind so that the dog can't back up but you're not pushing him forward. You're going to allow the dog to get up into the back seat on his own time. It could take one minute, it could take 20 minutes, whatever it takes, it takes. And walk him completely out so he literally comes up onto the back seat 
and you walk him because now the leash was fed through. So the owner or the whoever the dog likes the best is on the opposite side. So the dog sees you. It's not looking at the door. It's looking at a person now because the door is wide open. The dog comes up, across, and down. And when he does that, big fuss. Kiss him, pet him, love on him. Don't do food yet. Now you're going to make a fuss for maybe a minute or so. You're going to walk him around to the other side. Now to the driver's side again. You're going to feed this long leash through. Person is going to stand behind the dog so he can't back away. And as the dog moves forward, you move forward with him. Don't push him. Just wait for him. If he goes, uh, leans forward an inch, you take that inch. If he goes forward three inches, you take that three inches. Don't let him go backward. Again, eventually, there's nowhere for him to go but forward. And now he goes forward. He comes up across the back seat and down. Now, when he comes back down, what happens? Well, he comes across, back down, big fuss, because he did it again. Now he's seeing a pattern. Now he's starting to say to himself, huh, I see a pattern here. This is what you want me to do. So now bring him around again, and same thing, person stands behind him. He's probably going to get up that third time a lot easier, and now he's going to jump up. He's going to walk across the back step. He's going to get out. Well, now he's happy. So now there's your lesson for that. Okay, if you want to do it a fourth time, you can do it. The next step on that would be put him, same thing, the door closed and the person he loves on that far side. So the person, one person on the driver's side would take him and lead him up and stand behind him so he can't back out. And the dog jumps up and now he comes over and there's his person and big fuss. Then what are you going to do? Open the door, shush him. So the shush tells him to wait. So don't let him just run out now. Now he's got to be controlled because you're telling him when to get out. You're going to get out. And then he's going to, with permission, okay, and he's going to come out. And then you're going to do that a number of times, at least three. But you should be practicing all this several times a week. If you can do it a couple times a day, that'd be even better. And don't go anywhere. Once you then get him in, because then you're going to have him jumping up on his own because he's not afraid of going in, that's where you start taking him, drive up and down the driveway, forward and back. Try to be careful with your brakes and with your gas pedal. Don't be too rushed. Don't be too jumpy. Make sure that you're driving well. You're going to do your driveway. And just so maybe slide up, you know, to the end of your driveway, or or the parking lot, just slide up one or two spots, pet him, big deal. Oh, good boy, good boy, good boy. Love you, love you, love you. Snuggle, 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 kiss, kiss, kiss. Now he's starting to say, really? I get in the car and I get smooched? And he starts seeing a cause and effect that if I get in the car, I get snuggled. Instead of if I get in the car, I have, you know, these these dogs, these uh, people who are going to be mad at me, I'm going to be throwing up, and I'm going to be uncomfortable, and God knows where we're going. So it's, it's a process. So eventually you'll get to the point where you'll actually shush him 
and make him wait before he even gets into the car. Now, just remember, we talk about the, the rules with my book, Shh Happens, S-H-H-H, Happens, Dog Behavior 101. You can get it on Amazon, and if you don't have a Kindle, you can get the free Kindle software um, for any electronic device. Um, it's pretty easy. Now, what the book is going to teach you is the difference between the purpose, the energy, respect, connection, and health, and it's going to teach you the rules. The space is respect, the floor rule, the furniture rule, which the car would be furniture because you're jumping up onto it, right? And then there's the hallways and doorways on after that. Well, what's a door? A car door is a door. A crate door is a door. So eventually you're going to teach him to wait before he gets into the car and when he gets out of the car. So this way... The dog is learning, and it's not just, let me drug my dog. Let me give him something so that he's, you know, not going to be, you know, neurotic. Let me give him some, like, pills or CBD oil or something. And, you know, that's really the way of teaching your dog not to be afraid. Now, if your dog genuinely just has motion sickness, you can work on that. Not, we've had a couple of dogs through the years who were a bit motion sick. Um, my Ridgebacks, I don't typically, I, I don't think I've actually ever had one of my New Jersey Ridgebacks um, car sick because I take them out when they're little, unless it's bitter, bitter, bitter cold, um, I, and I rock them. So there's actually things you can do to basically recreate the and and pretend that you're, you know, putting the dog in the car with the rocking and the bouncing motion. And in that way, you get their bodies used to it. So sometimes it's their brains that are just like, uh-oh, uh-oh, I'm nervous, I'm nervous. Sometimes it's actually their bodies. They actually get queasy. Um, I know a lot of people can't ride backwards on those buses like in Bermuda. Um, I know uh, a lot of people who, you know, they have to ride forward if they're riding with their back facing the direction they're going, will get sick. Um, Also, if you have a dog that tends to get sick in the car, don't feed him an hour before. If you know you're going to go out, give him nothing, uh, just a little bit of water. Um, You know, I'm not saying forever, but I'm just saying like right before you go for an hour or two before. But you're best off not feeding them or feeding them a small amount and trying short trips Don't do a giant trip your very first time. You're setting your dog up to fail. Um, Also, if dogs are not good getting into cars, sometimes they might not be good getting into other situations. Um, Imagine people say to me all the time, oh, I don't want to create my dog. It's mean. And I look at them and I say, why is it mean? Well, because he's in a crate. You know, he can't get out. And I said, well, you know, do you want people in prison? Do you want them to get out? Or is like, is it mean to put them in a in an area? I mean, they can walk around and, you know, it's a little different because your dog hasn't committed a crime. Um, and, and certainly there's probably a few people in who haven't committed crimes. But, um, you know, the point being, your dog hasn't done anything to deserve being locked up, so to speak, yet it's for his own safety. You have to realize that if you cannot put your dog in the car, if you cannot put your dog in a crate, 
And if you cannot for sure with 100% certainty know that you can put your dog in the car and arrive in the same condition 20 minutes later, you better start working on this with your dog. So again, the idea is bring your dog out, let him get used to being in the car when it's not moving. I went through the whole litany of, of the steps for that, and I'm sure everybody, you can always reread it, re-listen to the podcast on For the Love of Dog. And, you know, just really try as best you can to get the dog used to all the things that lead up to, all right, the steps leading up to driving to Florida versus just throwing him in the car and then he has a miserable time. And don't always resort to medication. A lot of times medication is very helpful, but I think it's quite overused sometimes. So um, we're going to take a quick break, and we are going to uh, hopefully come back to you in about a minute with From Shelter Dog to Service Dog. We will be right back. Don't go away. And welcome back to From Shelter Dog to Service Dog with Wispity Bunny Dog, who is right here by my feet, hanging out with me in the office, uh, in my home office. And I'm just really, really having a great day. Um, you know, today it was a, a wonderful day. The weather's starting to break. It's not looking so horrific. It's not brutally, brutally hot. It's not brutally, brutally cold. It's just that nice weather where we start to say, all right, maybe Jersey's not so bad. But, you know, I think one of the important parts of living anywhere is really knowing what it is about that individual place um, that, you know, makes it special, but that also makes it difficult. Um, A lot of times you look at things and you say, you know, all right, I want to go, you know, I want to move or whatever. And you don't realize that, you know, grass isn't always greener on the other side, right? So one of those things is service dogs. Now, how am I going to tie that in? Well, because everybody thinks, oh, it's so great. You wish I could take my dog with me everywhere, you know, and I'll get the, uh, you know, the, the little signature and a little, you know, letter, some kind of, you know, official-looking document that says I can take my dog all over. And we talked a little bit about that last week, but I want to talk about how do you differentiate and distinguish between an emotional support animal and a service dog? Obviously, if it's an emotional support chipmunk uh, versus a service dog, uh, that's kind of an obvious one. But one of the things is public access. And I'm working with a very good friend of mine, to try to start getting some kind of uh, emotional support animals allowed back within reason to flights and to other situations. Now, the issue that, that popped up with the airlines and with all the, you know, the fake service animals and the fake emotional support animals and all that, um, I think was, you know, the issue is, do you need the animal, okay? If if you say to me, hey, Janice, yeah, you know, I really do need, you know, the I do need the animal. I can't fly without it. I get really nervous. I get really anxious. I feel like I'm, 
you know, I'm, I'm, I can't breathe. And when that starts happening, that's the time that, you know, maybe you don't need an emotional support animal. Maybe if you're that crippled by anxiety, maybe you really just do need a legit service dog. So don't always think like, oh, you know, I don't want these, you know, them to, to, to stop with the, you know, emotional support dogs because I need one. You know, a lot of people, we know a lot of people fake, but there are a lot of people who think they need an emotional support dog when they really do need a low-level service dog. The key is, the difference is, the task training. So an emotional support dog in the perfect world would be a well-behaved dog that is comforting to the individual so that the person who needs that dog will put the dog on their lap or, you know, the dog can lick them or they can pet the dog or they can snuggle the dog or they're just, you know, knowing the dog is there and it makes the dog very comfortable. Now, the issue is why is it that so many people feel the need to take their pets, their ill-behaved pets, um, onto planes? You know, getting on an airplane for, you know, just think about it. A dog gets on an airplane. It's, first of all, the airport, right? Everything's rushing around. There's gazillions of smells. There's weird floors. There's people rushing around. There's suitcases. There's noises. There's PA system. There are all these things. If your dog isn't a super confident, you know, and I'm not dominant, but super confident and very comfortable in his own skin, he's going to have one heck of a problem. Uh, doing all of those things. So don't push your dog into that. But there are some things that you can do, um, whether you're training or self-training a dog for emotional support or service dog. Some of the things that they cannot be are obvious. They cannot be aggressive, meaning they cannot be people aggressive and they cannot be dog aggressive. They cannot be reactive. That means people reactive and animal reactive, because you never know what you're going to see wherever you are. People make the mistake constantly. And when I started using service dogs 25 years ago, um, it was basically me and, you know, guide dogs and hearing dogs, and that was about it. But what's changed a lot is that people are just dragging their, their dogs where they really shouldn't do, because it's just not even good for the dogs. So, if you're going to do this, at least do it right and bring a well-behaved fake service dog or fake emotional support dog. At least if it's well-behaved, nobody's going to be upset. The problem is when people have ill-behaved dogs that are very obviously not service dogs or very obviously not, um, you know, trained, you know, dogs, but rather are just wild Indians. Um, there was a, a girl at one of the colleges where we have a university partners program. And by the way, if anybody out there is interested and you uh, have a child or a niece, nephew, cousin, friend, or you yourself are listening, if you say, well, I go to, you know, ABC college, um, you know, I would love to start a Merlin's Kids chapter. That's great. We'll be happy to do a university partners program, uh, you know, chapter at your school. It's great because you're also able to learn. Um, we have special classes for those people who are going to be in charge of that. We have a whole really cool protocol on how to teach you guys everything and support you and show you what to do. And 
You don't get stuck with puppies, though, who don't know anything. You get actual fully trained service dogs, and you put, you know, three, usually two to two to six months of um, public access on. So that's what I'm going to talk about today is public access, because that's really the hard part that so many self-trained service dogs that I see that are just not good. First of all, you don't want a dominant dog. You want a confident dog, and if you don't know the difference between dominant and confident, then find yourself a real legitimate behaviorist who is going to teach you that, and I do not mean go find somebody who's an obedience trainer who says they're a behaviorist. Behaviorists can truly, truly, a good behaviorist should be able to tell you this dog is confident or this dog is dominant. A dominant dog is the one who will, or a very fearful dog, it's the one who is going to be a liability. Those are the ones that bite people in airports, attack children, and the children get blamed. Listen, I don't like it when kids come up and grab and hold, and I mean, I've had it, and I've told you the story multiple times that, you know, Wyatt and I were in Kennedy Airport, and a little kid, I could see the mother pointing at the dog and say, "Go, go hug doggy, go hug doggy. And I'm looking, I'm going, I've got a 110-pound, 108-pound giant Ridgeback here in full vest that I'm working that is keeping me upright. And this woman just tells her kid to go do that. The kid literally, like a leech, grabs onto Wyatt and is just hugging him, like holding onto him right around his neck. And it was a little, little kid, so he was pretty much face level, eye level with Wyatt. And I look at this woman and I'm like, okay, I know you don't speak, you know, it's clear you don't speak, you know, good English, which is fine because I don't speak good whatever your language is. But if you don't, at least ask the person with the service dog and say, hey, you know, is it okay? Or can, can he pet? Or, you know, make the motion. But that's what I was saying. This is a person who didn't even think, didn't even think, period. I can stop there. And to ask if this dog was even good with kids. Now, fortunately for them, all of the Merlin's kids' dogs are the best you'll ever see. None of our dogs are going to be reactive because if they are, they're not going to be service dogs. You can't have a dog who doesn't like kids. If I had a dollar for every time somebody said, well, why can't I train it to be a service dog? I don't have kids. Nobody I know has kids. Oh, okay. So there's no kids in the world because you don't have kids? You mean on an airplane, there's never going to be a child? In a supermarket, there's never going to be a child? In a shopping mall, there's never going to be a child? What are you kidding? What planet do you live on? And so what you have to start doing, and not at the beginning, but this is where, I mean, we do offer training classes for Merlin's kids. You can give us a call at 855-449-9288 or look at merlinskids.org, M-E-R-L-I-N-S-K-I-D-S.org. Um, and we will, we do have these classes and we'll be able to teach you what to do, but everything has to be done in steps. You don't want to overwhelm your dog because as soon as you do that, you're setting him up to fail. As soon as you set your dog up to fail, guess what? He's going to fail. So there was, uh, I think on Southwest, there were a couple of incidents and I know Delta had a couple. And what happened was people who have these emotional support animals, they buy a service vest. And so now everybody looks at the dog and thinks like, oh, gee, the dog 
peed and pooped all over the place, or the dog bit a child, or the dog is growling and snarling, or there were two dogs and one dog is trying to eat the other one. Um, and they say, ooh, that's, those are really not good service dogs. But they're not service dogs, but they're giving service dogs a bad name. I have no problem whatsoever people self-training. I think, it, as a matter of fact, I think it empowers the person who has a disability to allow that person and enable them to help train their dog because it gives them control, it gives them power, and it gives them a feeling of accomplishment. And everybody in the world needs that. So let's say, for instance, Merlin's Kids trains the dog and the dog is completely trained. We still require that three to six months of public access exposure. Our dogs get between 1,500 and 2,000 hours of training to become service dogs. That is about a year and a half to two years of training. It's a lot. So just think about it for a minute. If we spend, oh, let's say 20 hours a week, which probably isn't even a lot, that's excluding public access exposure, which is another probably 500, 600 hours on top of that. So if we take that dog, we train that dog perfectly, and then we take that person, the individual who's going to be receiving the dog, and we teach that person not how to train the dog, but how to utilize the dog. It's the same thing as I can get on a green horse. In other words, green horse, not the color, but we refer to a green horse as a horse who's never been ridden, okay, or has been very limited rides. So I get on that horse and I train it because I'm actually training it and teaching it what to do and how to do it and what the commands and the signals mean. But if you're self-training one dog, there's no way you could train your own, your own horse, right? You're basically, if you get lucky and have a good dog or if you happen to luck out and find somebody who actually knows what he or she is doing, um, then you might wind up with a really great dog, and I don't think you should be penalized by having to, you know, prove your training, but you should have to pass a test. And it's the same thing as with horses. You wouldn't take a little kid or you wouldn't take somebody with a disability um, who knew nothing about horses and put that individual up on that horse and have that individual be, um, you know, for lack of a better way, to say it, you know, be a, a human projectile waiting for a place to fall and fly. So if you want to self-train your dog, that's great. I'm super advocate of that. We do have the training classes to help you. But you have to be objective. And the issue with self-training a dog is that people typically get the dog first and then they start training it. What the best thing is is to get a dog that's a little older, maybe a year old, because now you can start playing around to see what the dog is capable of. When you get uh, an eight-week-old puppy or like a, somebody recently just um, got a seven-week-old puppy, which is ridiculous even by puppy mill standards, is ridiculously young. But when you get a puppy that's too young, they can have issues because they're not with their mother and their father and their siblings. It's great for dogs to be able to stay with their family uh, especially their mother and their siblings, till they're 12 weeks old, with the exception of if a dog is getting picked on or if a dog is so, 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 so dominant 
that it's starting to beat up on the other puppies because then those other puppies might be harmed. So if you have a, a way too dominant puppy, I can understand why somebody might want to, you know, give it up quickly, um, especially if they're not making money on it. You know, um, I'm the one who keeps the puppies till they're typically at least 12 weeks because by then they're pretty much housebroken. They know basic commands. Uh, they're, they're amazing. They're not going to bite anybody. They're great with animals. They're great with kids. They're great with everybody, and they've had tons of time. So that's how you set up a dog for success, not for failure. But what do you do when you pick the wrong dog? And I had somebody I was actually speaking with today, sweet, sweet person, um, got a dog and wants it to be an emotional support dog. Well, I have a lot of people who do that, and they get a dog, and they say, I want it to do this, this, or this. Well, I'm going to tell you something. I've seen people do it with horses. I saw somebody get an off-the-track thoroughbred that was huge, over 17 hands. It was probably about 17-2, which is enormous. Basically, think of a good-sized man with his hand up in the air, um, and it's probably at your elbow all the way if your uh, arm is up, outstretched upward. That's a big horse. And the person wanted to do something called team penning. Now, for team penning, you want a low quarter horse or a polo pony type of a thing, a low horse because you're, you're actually moving quickly, and it's that side to side, front to back, move, 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 move. And if anybody's ever seen a Great Dane trying to bound around um, and outsmart a Border Collie puppy, which is low to the ground, or something like, um, you know, a Sheltie, those things can move really fast and they're very quick. So, you know, if you have, a let's say, a dog who um, is a little anxious or is a little nervous or is not really doing what you want him to do, you can train him all you want, but you're not going to make him a good dog. Not that he's not going to be good for as a pet maybe, but if a dog is very dominant and is looking at other dogs like, I'm going to go take you out, is that a dog you really want to start putting a ton of time in um, to be a service dog? And I would argue no. You don't want a dog who's got issues. It's hard enough just training the skills onto a service dog or training public access onto even a good dog because you can have dogs who are lazy. Um, we had, we've had all kinds of everything. We've had a bunch of those doodles uh, that, you know, poor, well, they're not all, well, none of them are well-bred anyway, but poorly, poorly, poorly bred doodles. And you sit there and you say, well, wait a minute, these dogs are growling at everybody. They're afraid of everything. So why would you want to have a dog like that? First of all, put him in that situation where he's scared because a lot of those dogs have a lot of fear issues. There are some of them that are fine. Um, there's some of everything that's fine, and there's, you know, high preponderance of them that are not fine. So if you're looking for something, and if chances are if you need a service dog, you don't need agita, you don't need stress, you just want to find somebody to help you train a good dog to be a helper for you. If it's an emotional support dog and the dog doesn't have to do tasks, that's great. So it can be a dumb dog because we don't need one, so maybe a doodle is okay then for there. But if a dog is not comfortable in public, why are you going to force it to do that? Why would you want to make it do something that it isn't good at and isn't comfortable at? 
And I argue that go pick something that is more outgoing, more confident. So the difference between confidence and dominance, what's the difference? Confidence is when you feel comfortable in your own skin. You walk into a room, you're neither afraid nor picking a fight. You feel comfortable walking up and asking for help, for directions. You feel comfortable. You don't feel like you have to constantly watch who's watching you. And that's a really, really great way to be. Um, Wyatt was the most confident, non-dominant dog I've probably ever seen. Wyatt would walk into a room, whether there was a dog fight going on or there was nothing going on, he would walk in the exact same way and the dogs would just stop like because he walked in with an air of confidence, not arrogance, not dominance. He walked in confident and everything just kind of floated away and all of a sudden everybody was good with everything else. I saw him stop dog fights by walking up and bumping a dog that was having the dog fight and just kind of bumping him as he casually walked by and all the dogs turned and watched him and then followed him and left the dog fight. How crazy. Why was Wyatt like that? And why are so many really good dogs? Well, if you have a well-bred dog that's bred by a really top good breeder, then the person who's bred these dogs, who is what a breeder is, not your backyard breeder, puppy mill breeding, whatever kind of, you know, mix of mix of mix of mix that you think you're buying, which God only knows why people do, but uh, it's another whole story for another day. But a breeder breeds to better his breed. A breeder breeds dogs with the eye of always making the breed stronger, making the breed healthier, making the breed longer living, making the breed have a better temperament, making the breed better, period. If you take the average person who's breeding to make money, and I had a young girl call me uh, about a month ago, and she said to me, hey, Janice, I'm looking for a way to make money. And I said, okay, well, a lot of different things you can do. And she said, well, I want to breed dogs. What, what kind of dog, what kind of mix is the best one? Like, what where would I make the most money on? Yeah. And that is who's breeding dogs, people who shouldn't be breeding dogs. A breeder, so when you say, oh, we got it from a really good breeder, that's not a breeder. That's a puppy mill. I don't care if you're not breeding purebred show dogs that are going to be looking the same, becoming the same, um, being, having good temperaments, living a long time, being healthy, not having a lot of congenital issues, um, being you know good with kids, and, and generally good temperaments and good everything, those people are the ones you want to spend money and buy a dog from because if something happens, which it won't, but if it does happen, you now have recourse because that person isn't going to go, oh, yeah, we stopped breeding because we had too many that were aggressive. And I just had that with a friend of mine that I told her to return a puppy. I was one of the most aggressive puppies I've ever seen. And it was, you know, maybe eight weeks, nine weeks old. And this dog was so aggressive. So now she's got a much better one from a good top breeder. And the dog's temperament is wonderful. He's a sweetheart. I love him. So, you know, just look at your, your options. And when you're trying to get a dog, have somebody who truly knows, not just a local obedience trainer, See if you can watch people. See if, I mean, heck, you can call us. We'll see if we can help you to find somebody who's good. And you can't even go with the CGC and TDI stuff anymore because I've seen people uh, recently 
um, who are CGC evaluators who, you know, they, they say it's a service dog, like, oh, he's got a CGC when the dog was just aggressive in the mall and was, was growling and snarling and lunging at people, and she passes the dog and gets it through AKC. That's going to be its own little little uh, issue because I'm going to be working on that one on Monday. So you want to look at find somebody, and if you don't have anybody other than a local obedience trainer, ask the obedience trainer, do you feel comfortable guaranteeing that you're going to be able to give me a good opinion? Do you guarantee that the dog that we pick out together is going to be a good candidate to be a service dog? And most people are going to say, well, I'm not going to guarantee it. If they can't guarantee it, you're with the wrong person. You need to have somebody like me or, or my uh, assistant out in Missouri, Jen, or one of our behaviorists for you know Merlin's kids. You need to have somebody who knows dogs evaluate. And sometimes that can be somebody who's been at your shelter or in a rescue group for a really, really long time. Some of these really awesome people like like Allie, who I just met, um, you could see she knows everything about that. So it doesn't have to be somebody who calls himself a behaviorist, but people in rescue, not all of them, but a lot of people in rescue are also able to make really good choices. Um, another quick thing, please make sure you guys, um, with your dogs, um, keep them healthy, feed them right. Uh, we're almost, uh, we almost out of time. Um, do consider getting those NuVet vitamins that I've talked about a few times. Um, they're really phenomenal, and uh, they also are great. We just had some dogs that came in, some uh, seven rescues. Um, we've already got their skin conditions going in the right direction after only two weeks. Um, the NuVet, N-U-V-E-T dot com, and you can get the 15% code is uh, 86686, N-U-V-E-T com. 86686. I believe they're called NuVet Plus Canine Wafers. They also have a really good um, shampoo, and they also have great joint supplement for uh, for dogs who are a little older who have conformational issues. But, you know, take care of your dog. Make sure that your dog, first of all, you get the right dog. Get somebody to help you choose the dog. Don't fall in love with your eyes. Don't fall in love with your heart. Fall in love with your head. Let your head dictate and say, you know, that's a really cute dog, but it's really, really dominant, and it's probably too dominant, or that one looks really frightened. Don't pick one that you get that feeling in the gut that it's not going to be the right dog. Do the right thing. Make sure you get good help, and we're always here if you want to call us at 855-449-9288 or reach out to us. Um, on our website at merlinskids.org. Well, time to go. I can't believe it. Time flies when you're having fun. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody. Please be safe. It's going to be raining this weekend. Drive carefully, hug your dog, and have a wonderful, healthy, safe weekend. Take care. 